Thanks for joining me today. I'm Todd Allen, and this is Insurrection, Episode 4, First Echoes of War. This is an original audio fiction series written and performed by me. This episode is wild, but if you happen to be new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. After this episode, you won't want to miss the companion podcast on Wednesday, where Will, Carrie, and Lauren join me to delve into all the craziness that's about to unfold. I've heard from a lot of listeners who say they enjoy the podcast as much as the story, which is awesome. We're all in this together, and this story is only just beginning. In episode two, Surveying the Wreckage, we met Eli Crane, the commander of a large, secret paramilitary force. As Eli wanders through the wreckage of Donald Trump's plane and family, he knows the time has come to set in motion the operation for which Group Alamo was commissioned and built. The time has come to overthrow the globalist deep state. At the end of that episode, Eli pulls out a phone and says the words that will radically alter the course of the United States of America forever. Operation Last Stand begins tomorrow. This, then, is the beginning. The insurrectionists finally strike back. You can find us a few different ways. On Facebook and Instagram at Todd's World 2023. Also on Twitter at Todd's World 2023. And on Truth Social at The Todd Allen Show. I'm probably most active on Twitter, although I just rejoined this past week. But Elon owns it now, and only a week in, I've got to say... I love it. You can find clips of the show and share them with your friends. Check out my other weekly podcast at the Todd Allen show and also look for a weekly op-ed essay. I plan on launching in the next week or two. You can find that at Todd's world on Substack. I want to thank everyone for enjoying the story with us up to this point. And when you join us next week for episode five, let me thank you up front for your support. I couldn't do this without it. Remember, this show only works one way. You have to spread the word. Share it with your family and friends so we can all enjoy the shock and awe together. These stories are going to be ongoing for many years. It's going to be a wild ride from here on out, and I can't wait to take it with you. This little disclaimer is especially important for this episode. This is a work of fiction. All names, characters, businesses, places, events, even those based on real people or events, are entirely fictional. The product of the author's striking and remarkable imagination. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental and fictional. I in no way encourage or promote violence unless you are defending yourself or your family or your country from the violence of tyranny.
Thanks again for joining me. Enjoy the fourth episode of Insurrection. Episode 4, First Echoes of War Darkness brooded over the quiet upscale suburban neighborhood. The well-appointed homes rested on large lots, each property meticulously landscaped by crews of largely undocumented immigrants. But the cheap labor kept the prices somewhat in check, and even upwardly mobile servants of the vast federal government liked to save where they could. In truth, they rarely thought about the issue at all. Raging inflation, rampant food shortages, and failing schools were other people's problems. On Magnolia Lane that warm summer night, the credentialed and highly paid denizens of the bureaucratic elite slept soundly. The troubles of the heartland seemed a world away. At 11.47 p.m., the entire neighborhood lost power. The quaint streetlights blinked off, and darkness swallowed the clean-swept streets. Four minutes later, the expansive white Victorian home at 1462 Magnolia Lane, belonging to the deputy director of the FBI, exploded into flames. The detonation rocked the quiet neighborhood, shattering windows and knocking pictures and artwork off the walls of the surrounding homes. Dogs barked and children screamed inside dark houses. Two minutes later, another home on the opposite end of the neighborhood exploded, shattering more windows and eliciting more screams in the night. This home belonged to the assistant director of the National Security Agency. Alarms began ringing at the closest fire station three miles away. Within ten minutes, the noise of sirens sounded out over the quiet streets. Parked in a nondescript driveway just outside the well-heeled neighborhood, two men sat together in a dark-colored Ford F-150. The windows were tinted, but they felt the explosions and watched the red-orange glow of the fires paint the night sky. Neither spoke. One of the men flipped open a phone and sent a short, encrypted message. 800 miles away beneath the dark woods of northern Michigan, a text popped up. The party has started. The men in the truck watched in silence as the first responders and fire trucks sped past them on the street with sirens blaring and red and blue flashers flashing. Shortly after, the news trucks raced by to get a live feed up on televisions across the state and eventually the country. It was just beginning. Within a few hours, all of the streets within a two-mile radius of the explosions would be blocked off while local police and members of various state and federal law enforcement agencies searched the surrounding area and homes for the perpetrators. 
The men and the truck would be far away by then, having pulled out onto the road soon after the first of the news vans sped by. They waited to turn their lights on until they were already moving. Then the driver flipped on the red flasher mounted to the cab's roof. None of the residents already standing outside their homes staring at the red-orange glow in the sky and watching the wailing, passing vehicles of the emergency responders thought anything of the dark truck with the red strobe flasher. Just one more volunteer fireman responding to the fires. Four blocks later, they turned off the flasher and turned the truck onto Highway 270. The men still hadn't spoken, but they breathed easier as they merged into the light traffic heading northwest. The taller man in the passenger seat opened a small cooler at his feet and brought out two Budweiser's. The cans sported the red, white, and blue American flag, the kind of specialty cans available around the 4th of July. He opened one and handed it to the driver, then popped open his own. The driver allowed himself a smile. He looked at his partner. Back in the saddle again. The passenger smiled back. He looked out the window at the moon hanging low and bright. Back in the saddle indeed. They raised their beers in the darkened cab of the F-150. To freedom, the passenger said. To freedom, the driver replied. Together, they drank to the memory of a country that once was. A country they hoped one day might be again. As they disappeared into the night, the only sign of their passing were identical sheets of paper stapled to trees in front of both of the exploded homes. It was a faded copy of the Declaration of Independence. An identical copy of the Declaration of Independence was already stapled to a large tree outside the Regional Operations Center for Harrington Bank, one of the largest multinational banks in the world. When at 11.52 p.m., the speakers throughout the building began blaring a warning in alternating English and Spanish for any and all occupants to exit the building immediately. The workers on the cleaning crews looked at each other in bewilderment. But after the fifth repetition of the cryptic warning, everyone inside the building began to make for the exits. Ten minutes later, while many of the mostly Hispanic employees of the cleaning companies waited outside in their vehicles, smoking cigarettes and wondering if they should go home for the night, the building surrounded by empty parking lots exploded and vaporized into a blazing fireball. The ground shook beneath their tires as the janitors took cover in their cars and pickup trucks. Some of the women screamed while the men just stared at the blazing building in horrible wonder. Except for one. He had just joined the after-hours cleaning staff a month earlier. He was parked in a different lot, on the opposite side of the building. He couldn't hear the women screaming or see the men staring. He was smoking a cigarette of his own, and behind the glowing cherry at the end of his Marlboro, he watched the bank burn, and his lips turned up in the shadow of a smile. He opened up a flip phone and typed out a short text, hit send, and closed the phone. 
He opened the back, removed the battery, pulled out the SIM card, and snapped it in two. Then he put the Ford sedan in drive and pulled out of the parking lot onto the service road. He didn't turn the headlights on, trusting his escape to the glow of the intermittent streetlights scattered throughout the industrial complex. Farther down the road, when he had turned onto the state highway, he flipped his lights on finally and sped away from the burning building into the night. Once he was on his way, he turned the radio on and Garth Brooks sang out of the speakers, Standing outside the fire. And the man in the Ford smiled again. It's God's little winks so many miss and fail to appreciate. The drums pounded and the guitars screamed while the bodies of dancers pulsated to the heavy beat. Most were coked up, and if they weren't flying off white lines, there was always ecstasy or any number of other illegal substances readily available. In the VIP section, a youngish man held court at the largest table, surrounded by tall, athletic blondes. He was a leg-and-ass guy, and all the girls qualified. One woman in particular seemed to have captured the man's fancy. She looked like she had slid off the cover of a magazine, and the thin, balding man eyed her like a mountain lion watching a young deer. She would be his meal for the night. He had already decided. When the beautiful young woman excused herself to use the restroom, she didn't notice the tall woman with bright, intelligent eyes who got up and followed her into the bathroom. The aspiring model was smiling and laughing as she entered the nearest stall. One of the richest men in the world had invited her to his palatial mansion for private drinks. The world would soon be her oyster. She smiled to herself as she did her business, and when she exited the bathroom stall, she was still smiling. But the woman with the bright eyes stood with her back turned toward the sinks, facing the young girl. And as the girl looked at her, her smile froze in place. We don't have much time, the tall woman said. She held out a long, dark wig and an equally dark sweater. Put these on. We need to get you out of here. Quickly. The young blonde wanted to protest. Her dreams of an evening of extravagant wealth and pleasure meant a sudden end. But there was something in the tall woman's bearing that held her back. This was a serious woman, wildly out of place among the black mini-dresses and thumping club music. The young girl reached for the wig and put it on, adjusting it in the mirror. When the wig was right, she put on the sweater. She didn't ask questions. When the blonde girl was gone and a dark-haired brunette had taken her place in the mirror, she turned back to the tall woman. Now, we're going out this door. Instead of turning right and heading back to the VIP section, we will turn left. At the end of the hallway, we'll take another left and leave the building through the back exit. It's an emergency exit only. When we open it, alarms will go off. Don't worry about the alarms. Just keep moving. She looked at the young girl closely, and her bright eyes turned hard. No matter what happens, keep moving toward the exit and get out of the building. The girl nodded her understanding, and together they went out the door. 
The pounding music hit them as soon as they opened the door, but it didn't matter. They turned left, away from the music, and made their way toward the emergency exit. Behind them, someone yelled. It was one of the rich man's security team. He had sent him to keep an eye on his prey for the night, not wanting her to escape unnoticed. The wig and sweater had bought them a few seconds, but a few seconds was all they needed. The young girl slowed her pace and turned just slightly toward the voice, but the woman pushed her on. No matter what happens, don't stop. Get to the exit and get outside. The bodyguard broke into a run, chasing the women through the narrow corridor. The women were also running now, but not fast enough to escape the bodyguard. They made it to the end of the first hallway and turned left. He was right behind them now. The tall woman could almost feel his labored breath on the back of her neck. Still, she waited for his touch. Timing was crucial. Then the bodyguard reached for her. His hand found her jacket, and in the same moment, the woman stopped and spun and struck. With one hand grasping her jacket and the other hanging at his side unprepared, she had the opening she needed. Though she was tall for a woman, the bodyguard was taller, and that worked to her advantage. She punched him hard in the throat, and he fell to the ground, gasping, clawing at his jugular. Then she was running again, pushing the young woman toward the exit. They pushed the bar across the door, and the door swung open, and as they ran out into the night, the screaming of fire alarms filled the club. The youngish tech billionaire looked around in fear at the noise of the fire alarms. He had accumulated a $30 billion fortune, inventing an app that allowed the masses to spew bile and hate at the touch of a button, all in a few hundred characters or less. Lately, he had embarked on a vendetta to censor as many of those who disagreed with his accepted progressive mantra as possible. Get me out of here, he screamed at his security team. I'm going to die. I'm going to burn to death in this stupid club. His eyes were wide and hysterical. His beard hung past his chin and curled up at the end. He resembled a 16th century nobleman, and due to his irrational fear of soap, often smelled like one. His entire body trembled with fear, and he continued shrieking like a nine-year-old girl as his team tried to force their way out with their rich young ruler through the crowd of frenzied millennials. The leader of the security team yelled over the chaos into his wrist to the driver parked outside. We're going out the back. Meet us in the alley. The men formed a V with their screaming billionaire boss in the center and made their way through the crowd toward the back of the club. They found their missing team member lying in the hallway by the exit, still gasping for air still clawing at his crushed larynx. He tried to speak, but it was a useless endeavor. The rest of the team had forgotten about the girl of the night anyway. They grabbed their injured team member and pulled him out the door behind them. Shit, where are the cars? The leader asked no one in particular, then began yelling at his wrist again. When the gunfire erupted from the shadows, the injured security team member was sitting on the pavement leaning against the back wall of the building. 
He was staring up at the moon shining down between the buildings. He could barely breathe and felt like his ears might explode from the pressure. But through the pain, he had time to think the moon was beautiful that night. It was his last thought before his skull exploded from a 556 round and painted the concrete wall behind him bright red. All six members of the modern nobleman's security team died without ever seeing their assailants. By the time they heard the noise of the FN SCAR assault rifles, they were already falling. Three were dead before their bodies hit the concrete, and the eyes of the rest went dark within seconds of their legs collapsing beneath them. Only their rich, balding boss remained standing. He was still screaming, eyes wide, his hands covering his ears. He was crying. His bowels had let loose, and his shoes, custom-made in Italy at a price tag north of $10,000, were soaked in his own urine. The man in dark gray military fatigues materialized out of the darkness and approached the pathetic figure screaming and crying in the deserted back alley. When he took off his helmet and goggles, his blue eyes held no sympathy or compassion for the shell of a man whose net worth eclipsed that of many nation-states. Johnny Tyler, the man said, his voice loud and clear, unmistakable even over the wailing fire alarms. You have been convicted of collusion with the enemies of the United States of America. Federal election interference, bribery, unlawful censorship, crimes against the Republic, and high treason. By who? Johnny screamed through his tears. Who convicted me? I'm Johnny Tyler. Rage thinly masked by terror. The man in the dark military fatigues appraised the shorter man whose well-appointed world had suddenly crumbled around him. By me, Johnny. You've been convicted by me. You built your fortune sending messages. So tonight, you're going to send a message to the world for me, Johnny. The world is no longer safe for members of the elite cabal turning America into a Marxist hellhole. And it starts tonight. Good night, Johnny. Johnny tried to reply, but then the muzzle of the FN scar pointed at him exploded, and in two seconds his body was littered with holes, and he slowly slid to his knees, his blood mixing with his own urine and pooling on the alley street. Just before he collapsed face down on the concrete, the man in the dark military fatigues grabbed him by the hair and pushed him back so his body was face up his lifeless eyes staring up at the starry night sky. The man in the military fatigues leaned over the former billionaire, pulled a large stapler and a folded piece of paper from his left cargo pocket, and got to work. The young aspiring model watched the carnage from the shadows 30 feet away, and when the gunfire erupted, tears found her eyes, and she cried quietly in the darkness. The tall woman put her arm around the girl, but her eyes held no tears. They were bright and calm and hard. And as Johnny Tyler's bullet-riddled body fell to the concrete, her eyes narrowed and the corner of her mouth turned up in the hint of a smile. It had begun. When the police found Johnny Tyler's body, 
It was hanging from a metal fire escape ladder 10 feet in the air. He had an American flag draped across his shoulders and a faded copy of the Declaration of Independence stapled to his chest. Most of the windows in the large house on the beautifully landscaped lot in the plush northern Virginia suburb were dark, but one window on the main floor facing the backwoods glowed dimly in the gathering darkness. The window opened into a large office with stained wooden bookshelves stretching from floor to paneled ceiling, behind an oversized bird's-eye maple desk, at which the older middle-aged man sat reading through a file with the word classified stamped on the front of the folder. Eli stood quietly in the darkness of the manicured lawn, 20 feet from the window, and watched the man working late into the night, preparing for a trial the next morning. He was a judge, and not just any judge, one of the seven Washington, D.C. federal judges who had been assigned to the January 6th insurrection defendants most of whom had been denied fair trials and thrown in jail for a various assortment of misdemeanors revolving around their crimes of ascending the hollowed steps of the people's house, taking an unauthorized tour of the Capitol building and snapping pictures of those revered spaces. The people's representatives and senators had faced no real danger that day as they huddled in their offices and coat rooms in fear of the unwashed hordes with their smartphone cameras and red Make America Great Again baseball caps. But the elected representatives dutifully played their part in the unfolding made-for-TV drama organized and encouraged by corrupt FBI informants. The entire ordeal was a setup for Donald Trump and his supporters enraged that the 2020 presidential election had been rigged and stolen in the dead of night two months earlier. Stop the Steal, that had been the name of the rally earlier that same day. But the fix was already in. There would be no stopping it. Eli pulled a pack of cigarettes out of his pocket, put one to his lips, and lit it. The lighter's flame glowed orange in the dark yard. As he drew on the cigarette, the lit end burned bright against the night. Eli had quit the habit years ago, but he still enjoyed one on occasion. It was a beautiful, crisp fall night, and a leisurely smoke seemed especially fitting for his errand. If the man sitting at the desk happened to glance out the window, he would surely see the burning cigarette outside. But then, that was in fact exactly what Eli was counting on. Dennis Hawkins scanned over the papers in the open file before him, getting a sense for the case he would try the next morning. A minor securities fraud case that should have been pled out six months ago. Up until a few days ago, he expected it still would be. But apparently, either the defendant or the prosecutor had some particular axe to grind, and his courtroom would provide the stage. The judge rubbed his eyes and glanced at his watch. It was after midnight too late to be playing catch-up on a case that should have never gone to trial. At least it wasn't another January 6th case, with all the accompanying rhetoric and media-driven fury on both sides, the last of those defendants having been tried and convicted nearly a year earlier. 
What a shit show that had been. Largely just a bunch of working class hicks from flyover country. Nevertheless, they had to be dealt with severely in order to scare off the rest of the peasants from trying to storm the gates. And even though he had been appointed by Donald Trump as a favor to his cousin, a Republican senator, Judge Hawkins had done his part, and the miscreants were safely locked away, their lives and families appropriately ruined. Their fellow serfs would think twice before picking up their torches and pitchforks again. The judge leaned back in his chair and breathed deeply, his eyes fighting sleep. Then he looked over to the large bay window and the reflection of his office in the glass. If the memory of his own part in the government's mistreatment and persecution of the January Sixers bothered him, he didn't recognize it as such. His conscience had been hardened off to the ways of the D.C. swamp long ago. He thought he should probably go to bed and get some rest for the trial tomorrow, when an orange flame sprang to life in the darkness outside the window, and he stared at it from his chair. The orange flame burned the gloom outside his window for 10 or 15 seconds, and then disappeared, replaced with the glowing end of a burning cigarette. Dennis Hawkins frowned probably one of his personal security detail on their nightly rounds of checking the property, but they were under strict instructions not to smoke anywhere on the grounds. His wife was an anti-smoking zealot, and if she found a stray cigarette butt in her landscaping, there would be hell to pay. He rose from his desk chair and moved toward the door. He would nip the problem in the butt. Eli saw the change in the judge's face and watched him rise to his feet, and make his way to the back entrance, and Eli smiled in the darkness. The judge walked confidently out the back door onto the small patio and headed toward the dark side of the house. He had no way of knowing the marshals assigned to his personal security detail had already been neutralized by the small special operations team Eli had brought with him, as had the home's alarm system and cameras. Dennis Hawkins was in more danger than he had ever been in his life, yet blissfully unaware. Rounding a large oak tree, he spoke loudly in the direction of a shadowy human form in the darkness. Hey, you can't smoke on my property. My wife will kill you if she catches you smoking out here. Eli let the judge get closer before he finally turned. He wore dark gray camp fatigues, emblazoned with a blacked-out American flag on the shoulder. The meaning of the symbol was lost on the judge, but not on Eli. He had chosen it, after all. Eli looked at the judge, but didn't answer him. What the hell do you think you're doing? Dennis Hawkins started up again, but when he was close enough to see the man's eyes in the darkness, and to make out the blacked-out American flag on his uniform, his words caught in his throat. Good evening, Judge Hawkins, Eli finally answered. Burning the midnight oil, I see. You're a dedicated public servant. Panic crept into the judge's eyes, and he turned back for the safety of his home. I hope you'll display the dignity of your office by not attempting to run, Eli said. Who are you? the judge asked, turning back to face the stranger again. Where's my security detail? Tucked safely into their vehicles, sleeping like babies, I imagine. Eli said. As for me, my name is Eli, and I represent the people 
of the United States of America, Your Honor, and I take the task at hand seriously indeed. The judge gathered himself from his initial panic and looked appraisingly at the man smoking in his thick, green, well-manicured lawn. Which department do you represent? I'm not aware of a part of the government that makes a habit of targeting federal judges in the dark of night while sneaking around in their landscaping. The man smiled, but it was cold and hard. Dennis Hawkins had seen his share of hardened criminals, but he had never witnessed a smile quite like the one now gracing Eli's face. I believe you'll find, Your Honor, that most of what I represent, you're not aware of at all. Eli enjoyed calling the man Your Honor, and he didn't hide the fact. The two men used to positions of power looked at each other for a long moment in the light of the waning moon. I'm here to arrest you, Judge Hawkins, for your role in the miscarriage of justice known as the January 6th trials. You swore an oath, Mr. Hawkins, to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, and in your politically motivated persecution of the January 6th defendants, you broke that oath. You failed the citizens of this country. Where's your warrant? the judge asked, visibly shaken now. This is a special military operation, Your Honor. We don't bother with warrants from corrupt judiciaries signed by bought and paid-for judges. You will be held in a military prison, subject to the same treatment the January 6th Patriots have been. You are officially a prisoner of war, Judge Dennis Hawkins. I would read you your Miranda rights but I don't think you'll be needing them. What remained of the honorable judge's dignity drained away, and he turned to make a break for the house. But upon turning, found two more strangers in the same dark gray fatigues waiting behind him. As he opened his mouth to scream, one of the men stuffed a wadded-up rag into his mouth while the other man flex-cuffed his wrist behind his back. The one who had gagged him wrapped duct tape around his head, securing the cotton gag, and slipped a black hood over his head. Together, they turned the judge around and frog-marched him through his private yard to the waiting black suburban on the street. Eli watched his men haul away the judge without following them. Instead, he went to the back door of the home Dennis Hawkins shared with his wife of 35 years. He unbuttoned the left front pocket of his gray camouflage jacket and pulled out a folded piece of paper. It was a faded copy of the Declaration of Independence, with a watermark of a blacked-out American flag behind the script words. He taped it to the door and turned to leave, his mission for the night completed. Throughout the night, all around Washington, D.C. and the surrounding suburbs, Group Alamo special operations teams arrested those officials directly involved in the January 6th prosecutions and kangaroo court hearings. At every home, Identical copies of the Declaration of Independence with the black American flag watermark were taped to a door. By the time the sun rose the following morning, the cat would be out of the bag, and Eli smiled at the thought. He jogged to the waiting Chevy Suburban, opened the back driver's side door, climbed in, and the truck began moving. In all, seven federal judges and 42 federal prosecutors were abducted from their homes and disappeared into the night without a trace.
The evening's festivities had gone late, later than Jackie Parisi would have preferred. At 79 years young, her late-night partying days had long since passed her by. But she still loved a good glass of wine, or 12. And as the gathering stretched past midnight, Jackie found herself even more drunk than usual for a Wednesday night. And that was saying something. Peter, her husband of nigh on 60 years, had touched her leg more than once, and not out of affection. They had left any affection in the rearview mirror some decades back. Peter saved his affection for any young men willing to swallow their pride along with his to be close to the corridors of wealth and power. As long as they didn't show up unannounced at his house the next day, with hammer in hand, Peter considered any and all such encounters a win at his age. No, his hand on his wife's leg was meant only to slow her down. Jackie and alcohol could be a bad combination, despite a lifetime of dedicated practice. Jackie Parisi had been elected to the United States House of Representatives as a Democrat in 1988, following the disastrous two terms of Ronald Reagan. Disastrous at least for the Democrats. She was the leader of the House Democratic Caucus for 20 of her 35 years as an elected representative and Speaker of the House for almost 10 years. She finally hung up her gavel and retired in the wake of the 2022 midterms, but she hadn't left Washington. Their time in D.C. had been good to Jackie and Peter. Moderately successful when she was first elected, with a net worth at the time of just over a million dollars, they had amassed a fortune of over $200 million while humbly serving the people of the 11th District of California. Of course, most of that was far enough off the books to avoid paying any real taxes on the income. But then creatively crafting tax law was just one of the benefits of being a congressional leader. And the grift had been going on so long, the voters barely blinked an eye. For her part, Jackie felt she could hold her alcohol like a pro, and she promptly ignored Peter's hand on her leg every time she felt it. To be fair, by the end of the night, she couldn't feel much of anything anyway. Sure, she had a tendency to slur her words as the wine bottles emptied, but she did that sober. Having suffered through more than 15 different plastic surgeries, she hadn't been able to feel her lips for at least eight years, and the more they plumped them, the harder it was to get the words out clearly. Luckily for Jackie, most of the world stopped caring about any specific words she uttered a long time back. Still, she felt the money on all the lifts and tucks and fillers over the years had been well spent for the most part. She had been a real looker in her younger days, winning a beauty contest at the tender age of 18. Her breasts still looked good in a bra, although after all the work she'd had done, It might be a stretch calling them hers, but the various congressional aides of both sexes she had accosted through the years seemed to enjoy them well enough. Even at almost 80, she was still on the prowl. That very night, she had grabbed the butt of a 30-something-year-old staffer and tried to kiss him. The young man had dodged the swollen, wine-stained lips bearing down on him as graciously as possible and extricated himself from her awkward embrace with a mumbled apology but not before she copped a feel and decided they would most certainly meet again. Later, as the clock ticked past eleven and her vision started to blur around the edges, 
she spied a young college intern, and her predatory urges roused to the occasion once more. It had taken her the better part of an hour to find her opportunity, but as Wednesday night rolled over into Thursday morning and the partygoers thinned out a bit, Jackie discovered the young girl alone in the hallway leading to the kitchen and advanced on her prey with all the subtlety the drunken great-grandmother could muster. She couldn't walk straight, but that wasn't unusual. She also couldn't talk straight, but again, that was par for the course after three bottles of Cabernet from her own Napa Valley grapes. She certainly had no idea, as she bore down on the pleasantly plump 23-year-old intern, that at that very moment an elite Special Forces A-team from Group Alamo had surrounded her home in the Tony, D.C. suburbs and neutralized her security team. Jackie Parisi's unwanted sexual advance in the kitchen hallway would be her last, the swan song of a long and sordid career. If Eli Crane had entered the hallway five minutes earlier, he could have saved the young intern the fear and embarrassment of being attacked and violated by a woman almost four times her age. As it was, the former speaker had ripped the girl's shirt open and was aggressively groping at her firm breasts while trying to kiss and lick the poor co-ed's face. If Eli had ever wondered what an 80-year-old vampire feeding might look like, the scene in the hallway left no lingering doubt. The former congresswoman was just getting down to business when the girl screamed, and Jackie felt the cold steel muzzle of a rifle against the chicken skin of her neck. Madam Speaker, Eli spoke in a calm, clear voice, and the former Speaker of the House let the intern loose from her claws as she slowly turned to face the man dressed in dark gray military fatigues, standing in her home, pointing an FN Scar assault rifle at her. The young lady doesn't seem particularly enamored with your advances. Jackie's eyes, which had widened in shock at the noise of the girl's scream and the feel of the gun against her neck, now narrowed in hatred and spite. Who are you? she asked. What are you doing in my home? The words mangled together as she spat them through swollen, unfeeling lips, dripping with her own spittle. Her long-pointed tongue appeared and licked at her red, puffy lips and as hardened a soldier as Eli was, he still recoiled slightly at the sight. My name is Eli Crane, he said. I'm here to kill you. The hate gradually drained out of her eyes as the reality punched through the wine haze. Eli turned to the young intern, crying and clutching her shirt together to cover herself. Honey, why don't you run along outside? One of my men will meet you and make sure you get to the garage where the interns and staff are being gathered. Eli offered the girl a smile. Don't worry, you'll make it home safe tonight. We're here for the speaker and her friends. The girl was still crying and clutching as she ran into the kitchen and out the back door when Jackie Parisi began screeching at the man holding the gun on her. Liar! Liar! I have security that will be here in seconds and shoot you dead. The words were slurred and garbled, and Jackie's head lolled from side to side as she screamed them at him. Her own blouse was ripped and open from her scrum with the intern, and her mostly silicone breasts bobbed perkily in the hallway, like those of a woman 35 years younger. Eli thought he had never seen a more pathetic and disturbing scene. He waved his rifle toward the dining room. 
Let's join the others in the dining room while we wait for the cavalry to arrive and shoot me dead, shall we? While she made no effort to close her blouse, the former speaker adjusted her jacket, squared her shoulders, and stumbled toward the dining room. She walked into the wall next to the doorway and would have fallen if Eli hadn't caught her and kept her on her feet. Almost there, Jackie, he said, holding her by the collar of her blazer and directing her through the open doorway to join her friends. There were seven of them huddled around the large dining room table, trembling, crying, blubbering about their children and their innocence. Along with Peter and Jackie, there was a longtime Democrat senator and his wife, a former national security advisor, the owner of a large hedge fund which managed a large share of the Parisi's ill-gotten wealth, and a prominent Washington socialite. Eli stood at the head of the table and addressed the group. My name is Eli Crane. I command the largest paramilitary group in the world, funded and armed by our very own United States Congress. So in your own ways, at least two of you at this table are directly responsible for my existence. He let that sink in around the table for a few minutes. Then he continued, Tonight, we are declaring war on the globalist deep state, currently exercising near-complete control over the government of the United States of America. And you, my friends, represent the final act in the first skirmish of this new war. Your unfettered greed, corruption, and lies have played a central role in the ascendancy of the deep state. No longer. The rise of the deep state is canceled. We will tear it down, individual by individual, institution by institution, fortune by fortune. And it begins tonight with you. The senator's wife and the socialite began sobbing. Jackie hissed at the stranger in her home while the men began to plead and protest. Eli waved them off and spoke to the soldiers with him. Take the speaker to the front foyer and get her ready. Two of the uniformed men standing behind Jackie lifted her up from her chair and dragged her away from the table, her silicone implants dancing like a pair of overinflated beach balls while she struggled. Once Jackie was gone, Eli spoke to the rest. Well, the night is getting on, and I must be on my way. I would wish you all a good night, but I think that ship has sailed. Don't think this ends here. Hell is waiting in the wings, my friends. You'll die for this, the former national security advisor to the President of the United States spat at him, seething with rage, not at all used to losing. You've already lost the war. You're nothing but a terrorist. You're as good as dead already. Eli had already turned for the front foyer before the outburst, but he turned back and stared at the man with eyes of flint. Maybe, but you're going first. Give the devil my regards. With that, Eli turned and left. Behind him, the noise of gunfire erupted, echoing through the house. And when the rifles fell silent, the six people around the table were dead, slumped over in their chairs or onto the table, their bodies riddled with bloody holes. Eli climbed up the large winding staircase, framing the grand two-story foyer. At the top of the stairs, the men with him had positioned a wooden chair against the railing. Jackie Parisi, former Speaker of the House, stood on the chair, weeping and swaying, the men on either side of her holding her in place. 
They had tied one end of a rope securely to the top railing. The other end was fashioned into a noose and securely cinched around Jackie's neck. Eli leaned over the railing and glanced down at the floor, gauging the distance. Then he checked the length of the rope and finally nodded. Everything was in place. He pulled a piece of paper out of the breast pocket of his jacket and unfolded it. Another copy of the Declaration of Independence, with the watermark of a blacked-out American flag in the background. He taped it to the back of the former speaker's blazer. When he finished, he nodded to the men beside her. They released their holds on her. Eli thought of how he had found her that night, assaulting the young intern in a drunken stupor, pawing at the poor girl in the hallway. And Eli pushed the old woman over the railing. Her shins struck the railing and she fell face forward. Then the noose caught and her head jerked up from her body. There was a loud crack and it was over. Jackie Parisi's body swung in the air and her bowels slowly emptied onto the marble tile floor beneath her. Eli watched her swing in the dancing light of the crystal chandelier hung from the ceiling. There were no tears in his eyes, no remorse in his soul. No speech? One of the guys asked. Eli turned for the stairs. That bitch didn't deserve a speech. On their way out, one of his men set fire to the gardening shed, and by the time they were in their vehicles and on the road, the shed was engulfed in bright orange flames. One of the neighbors would call 911, and the fire department would be the first on the scene, which was good. The deep state hadn't made many inroads at the fire department so news of the speaker's death would spread faster than it might if the D.C. police were able to seal off the home first. It didn't matter much anyway. Short video clips of the night's festivities from anonymous posters would find their way onto social media sites over the coming days and weeks. And though the national intelligence apparatus, with the willing help of big tech, would heavily censor the videos, they seemed to keep stubbornly popping up. When the memes started with Jackie Parisi's lifeless body dancing at the end of a rope, the media was apoplectic and the censorship increased. But they might as well have tried to hold back the tide. Within 12 hours, the massive behemoth that was the globalist American empire was very much awake to the new war suddenly on their own doorstep. The insurrectionist had roused the slumbering beast, and it wouldn't take long for the beast to roar. Across the country, a few who saw the news pop up on their screens stopped whatever they were doing and simply stared. Waves of fear and excitement rose in their chest, making it difficult to breathe. They had known the time would come, and now it was here. And though they had thought they were ready... Most were surprised to discover how unprepared they were when the moment actually came. Operation Last Stand had begun, and an understanding dawned. All that they once knew and loved was gone.